Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. We are in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18 today, where we learn about the beast from the earth. And as you are turning there, let's circle back and briefly recap where we've been to make sure we're all on the same page. The book of Revelation breaks down into three main parts. Part one was chapter one, dealt with things which were past. For the Apostle John, who's writing this down, it is his vision of the exalted Christ. And so that was part one. Part two was chapters two and three, those things that were present to the Apostle John. And that had to do with the seven churches of Asia Minor. Um, John is writing down letters to them to help to encourage them and to correct them in this very challenging season in which they were living. And then part three, which is the majority of the book of Revelation, chapters four through 22, it has to do with things future, things yet to come, both for the Apostle John and for us, that which is prophetic. It is the consummation of the kingdom that we are talking about. And the purpose of that third part is to give believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. And so we know that this judgment occurs after the rapture. After God has taken his church out of the earth to be with him, that is when this judgment happens. The seven-year period known as the tribulation that follows the rapture, where there are three waves of judgment. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And so we've covered the seal judgments and the first six trumpet judgments. And then something very significant happened a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 11. Remember what it was? It says in chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Right? Hallelujah. The seventh trumpet blew, which is a really, really big deal. Why? Well, because if we look at our chart, we keep referring back to, you see that seventh trumpet after the second interlude, it actually contains the seven bowls, that last wave that is to come of judgment. And so it also covers the rest of Revelation, includes the final series of judgments, it includes the final world battle, it includes the second coming of Christ, it includes his millennial kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state, all of that contained in that seventh trumpet. And so you see, it is a really, really big deal. And it also signals the fact of the consummation of God's kingdom that it is as good as done. The consummation of God's kingdom is as good as done. Well, We are in chapters 12 through 13, and we find ourselves in the midst of another interlude or parentheses of sorts, a pause in the action that tells us about three evil figures, right? Three evil figures in the tribulation, three evil figures that form an unholy trinity, And if if that sounds like a cheap knockoff of the real thing, an imitation, if you will, of the real Trinity, that's only because it is. 
I'm convinced that Satan has never had an original thought. He's really very uncreative. All he does is counterfeit the authentic. And so like a cheap Rolex that you buy from a street vendor that stops working the day after you buy it, right? Not that I would know anything about that, okay? <laughs> Satan himself says in Isaiah 14, 14, he says, I will make myself like the Most High, he can't be the most high. There's only one of those. So he will do all he can to be a poor imitation of the real thing, which leads to the creation of a counterfeit trinity, a terrible trio, where Satan, as we saw in Revelation 12, takes the place of God the Father, which has always been his goal, right? And as we saw last week when Pastor Mike was sharing with us, the beast from the sea takes the place of who? Christ, becoming an anti-Christ, as we saw in Revelation 13, 1 through 10. He's a demonized human who uh, becomes a political ruler, a reunited Roman Empire with 10 kings that was predicted by Daniel and detailed in 100 biblical passages, the beast from the sea, the antichrist. Well, today we talk about the third member of this counterfeit unholy trinity, the one who takes the place of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and is anti-spirit, Revelation 13, 11 through 18. And this is another demonized human being who is referred to later in Revelation as the false prophet, the false prophet. So we read about him beginning in Revelation 13, verse 11. So join with me there as I read this text, Revelation 13, 11 through 18. The Apostle John says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's, it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Would you join with me in praying this morning? Heavenly Father, again, how thankful we are for your word. How thankful we are that you have given to us the advanced history of what is to come. That God, as we see what is to come, it inspires us to be faithful in the here and now. It inspires us to be holy. It inspires us to be evangelistic. God, we ask for your help with this text this morning. It is challenging, as so many of these are in the book of Revelation. But God, it is not insurmountable. You have you put it here for a reason. You've got something to say to us this morning. And so would you open our hearts, open our minds, 
to what it is that you have for us. And God, I pray for your help in preaching it this morning, that it would be you coming through and not me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this passage gives us three characteristics of the false prophet, the third person in this unholy trinity. It tells us about his deceptive appearance, his devilish authority, and then his deadly activity. And so let's first look at his deceptive appearance. And that word deception is really the key word in this section, his deceptive appearance. It says in verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of where? The earth, the earth. Now, last week we saw the beast rising out of where? The sea, right? The Antichrist in verses 1 through 10 arose out of the sea. The false prophet arises from the earth. And so let's compare and contrast these two figures, all right? It's quite interesting when we do so. Uh, First, let's compare. What do they have in common? They both rise from the depths. They rise from somewhere. Most likely this is a reference to the abyss, that bottomless pit, that place where um, a certain group of demons was imprisoned. They were held there. Um, They had crossed certain lines, and so they were incarcerated in this place called the abyss. But then we saw with the the fifth trumpet, right, that the, the, the prison doors were opened, and all of these terrible, awful demons were let free to run on the earth. And so when that bottomless pit was open... These human beings, whoever they are, became horribly, horribly demonized under Satan's control. And so that's what these two have in common. They both arise from the abyss because of the demonic, and they are the product of that exodus from the abyss. But what about the contrast? Because they are different. They are two different people with some key differences. How are the beasts different? The easy answer is, well, obviously, one from the sea, one from the land. But what is the significance of that, what does it tell us about them? Well, first of all, the, this difference between the, the, the sea and the earth, the land, this may speak of their ethnicity. This may speak of their ethnicity. One line of thinking is that the Antichrist is a Gentile who rises from among the sea of nations, all right? That there may be some symbolism with that picture of the sea, while the false prophet then, in contrast, is a Jew who rises from the land, from the earth. That word land is frequently used in connection with Israel, right? For Israel, the land was a really big deal. And so that's one line of thinking that it may refer to their ethnicity. I don't think we can be dogmatic about that, but that is something that needs to be at least acknowledged that that's a possibility, that the Antichrist may be a Gentile and the false prophet a Jew. But also, and I think probably most central to this text, is it probably speaks of their personality, most likely speaks of their personality. It may speak that there's a difference here. The the sea is mysterious. It's foreboding. It's frightening, just like the Antichrist is mysterious and foreboding and frightening. But the land, right? The land is not as mysterious or foreboding. In fact, it gives us a sense of security, something solid, just like the false prophet does. Not nearly the mystery with the false prophet or the, that sense of, of foreboding. Um, the false prophet is even described in verse 11 as it had two horns like a what? A lamb. Isn't that sweet? Like a lamb. Cute and cuddly. Two little horns. 
in contrast to the Antichrist's ten horns. Nothing to fear here, right? Why would you fear a lamb with only two horns? Well, because it says in the second half of verse 1, it spoke like a dragon. It appeared as a lamb. It spoke as a dragon. More specifically, he speaks the words of the dragon, Satan, who we encountered in chapter 12. And so, again, the key word here throughout this chapter is deception. Deception. Appears as a cuddly lamb, but ultimately he is a ferocious dragon inspired and empowered by Satan himself. He will use lying words and counterfeit miracles to deceive the world to enlist worshipers for that first beast, the Antichrist. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 7.15, right? Beware of false prophets who come to you how? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, or as it applies to our passage today, are dragons. There have been many, 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 many false prophets throughout history. There are false prophets running around on the earth today, but this beast from the earth is the false prophet, the culmination of all the false prophets who have come before. And so that is his deceptive appearance. Disarming, cute, cuddly, like a lamb, but oh, at the end of the day, he speaks the words of the dragon. Next is his devilish authority. His devilish authority. Look at verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So the Antichrist and the false prophet are joined at the hip. It's kind of Batman and Robin kind of thing going on here. Two demonized human beings doing the work of Satan during the tribulation. And so if we just kind of put them side by side again, again, we've got the Antichrist, verses 1 through 10. He's a political leader. He has satanic authority to rule. But on the other hand, we've got the false prophet coming from the earth, Verses 11 through 18, he's a religious leader, and he has satanic authority to speak, to speak. And what does the false prophet speak about? Well, he speaks about the Antichrist, persuading people to worship him, which is quite predictable. I found this to be kind of interesting, because isn't that what the Holy Spirit does in a positive sense? David Jeremiah said it this way. He said, just as the Holy Spirit's objective is to point people to Jesus Christ. So the false prophet's objective is to cause people to worship the Antichrist. And so it's consistent with that counterfeit, unholy trinity, that terrible trio. And one of the ways that the false prophet will do this is by pointing to the false resurrection of the Antichrist. Remember last week in verse 3 when it said, one of the Antichrist's heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Again, a cheap copycat imitation of the real, authentic resurrection of Jesus Christ, and also, if you remember, of the two witnesses back in chapter 11. And so just as we, especially with Easter Sunday on the horizon, just as we point people to the authentic resurrection of Jesus Christ, what does the false prophet do? He points people to the counterfeit resurrection of the Antichrist in an effort to direct their worship to him. 
So that is the false prophet's deceptive appearance. It's his devilish authority. Next, let's deal with his deadly activity, or more precisely, activities, plural, because there are actually seven of them listed in this passage. We're going to go through these quite quickly. So first it says in verse 13 that he performs great signs. He performs great signs. And there's, there's a lot of parallels with the Old Testament here. And so, again, if you go back to Egypt, you remember when Moses and Aaron were doing the signs and wonders before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's uh, his priests, his guys were doing some of the very same things. We have, again, here, great counterfeit signs. So just as Jesus performed great signs during his ministry, now so does the false prophet. And again, Jesus said that this would happen in Matthew chapter 24, which is about the tribulation. It says in verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So these are quite convincing. People are going to look at this stuff and say, wow, that must be real. But church, please don't fall into the trap that just because something appears to be powerful, it must be real. There's a lot of counterfeit out there. So how great will these signs be? The second half of verse 13 says, Even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Now, who in the Old Testament made fire come down from heaven? Elijah, right? Elijah keeps showing up in our study of the book of Revelation. The true prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and the showdown with the prophets of Baal demonstrating in front of all the people that were watching that Yahweh is the one true living God. And now, here in Revelation, the false prophet, he's an Elijah wannabe, right? He's an Elijah wannabe. So he too appears somehow, some way, I don't know how, but however it is, people are convinced he calls down fire from heaven. And there's probably also an association here with the fact that Elijah and Moses, the two witnesses, what did they do when they were confronted? All right, they breathed out fire. So fire is central in this. So these are great signs which lead to the false prophet's second deadly activity. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. Again, church, just because something appears to be powerful does not mean that it is from God. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. He said, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So those who refuse the gospel during the tribulation essentially will be given over to the deception of the false prophet and the worship of the Antichrist. Reminding us, even today, that not choosing Jesus is a choice, right? Not choosing Jesus is a choice, and that we see that very graphically portrayed here during the tribulation, which leads to the false prophet's third deadly activity. He incites the creation of an image of the first beast. He incites the creation of an image of the first beast. Now, again, I just marvel at Satan's lack of creativity, right? Uh, this is another ripoff from the Old Testament, from Bible times. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, he erected this golden image for all the people to worship. It's the same thing here. There's nothing new. Satan's old, tired playbook. But there is something different about this particular image. What is it? It's deadly activity number four. He animates the image of the first beast. Now that's different than Nebuchadnezzar's image. It says in verse 15, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak. Interesting, right? Now, I don't know exactly what's going on here. A lot of possibilities. I don't know if this is some kind of glorified animatronics-like. Any Chuck E. Cheese fans out there? Remember his band? You know, when I was just kind of like doing I'm way bunny trailing here, but 2017, they shut down Chuck E. Cheese's band. Did you know that? The animatronic band with, all, um, I don't know if it's because it was scaring kids or what. But um, anyway, I don't know if it's something like that or maybe it's some kind of artificial intelligence thing, um, a souped up Siri or Alexa or IBM's Watson. Please don't leave here today saying, well, Pastor Chad said Siri is the Antichrist. And that's not what I said, but you get the idea that with artificial intelligence, there, there probably is the ability for there to be an image that appears to be living, that appears to have life and is able to respond and to speak. But whatever is going on here, people buy into it. Like, oh, it must be real. It looks powerful. We saw fire. We saw a talking image. They believe that the image of the Antichrist has come to life because it speaks, which leads to deadly activity number five. He causes those who do not worship the image to be slain. He causes those who do not worship the image to be slain. Um, again, just like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, the ultimatum is made, bow or die. Bow or die. Same thing here. Just as Nebuchadnezzar wanted to put to death those who did not worship the idol, so will the false prophet. And part of the worship demanded will be the sixth deadly activity. He causes all to be marked with the name slash number of the beast. And again, this is, this is the part we're familiar with, right? It was 666. We we, uh, even if you're not a church person, you're familiar with 666. Look at verse 16. It says, Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. And then verse 18 says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, if we're honest Together, we should be honest, right? There's a lot that we don't understand about this. There's a lot that we don't know about the mark of the beast. And I think there's a lot that isn't going to be clear to us, but will become clear to those who are in the tribulation going through this. All right? But here are three key things to note from these verses. Number one, the mark of the beast is a visible mark on the right hand or forehead. It's a visible mark on the right hand or forehead. Number two, it is taken as a declaration of allegiance to the Antichrist. It is taken as a declaration of allegiance to the Antichrist. Now, this is important, all right? No one will take this mark accidentally or unknowingly. 
Right? I've heard people, you know, concerned about this. Oh, well, what if, what if I, what if, it, what if I've already taken the mark? What, 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 it, it is tied to the worship of the Antichrist. People will know exactly what they are doing when they take the mark. All right. Number three, in some way, the name of the Antichrist equates to the number six six six. In some way, the name of the Antichrist equates to the number 666. Don't know exactly how, and people have tried over the years to do all kinds of numerological gymnastics to make the names of certain historical figures equal the Antichrist. And you know what? They've all been wrong. They've all been wrong. But in the time of the tribulation, again, I believe it will be very, very clear who this individual is and how his name equates to the number 666, um, which leads to the false prophet's deadly activity. Number seven, he controls commerce. He controls commerce. Verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So your choice is this. Worship the beast by taking the number or have no job. Worship the beast by taking the number or be unable to buy food. Worship the beast by taking the number or be homeless. So you talk about putting your faith to the test, right? True believers will reject the beast and his mark regardless of the consequences and entrust themselves to God. I think one of the lessons here is, though, that once you make that decision to pledge allegiance to the Antichrist and receive the seal of the mark, which again is another counterfeit ripoff from the one true living God, you are sealed at that point, just as the Holy Spirit seals us in our salvation. That's, a, again, why I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? It was all laid on the line for them. They rejected the pressure to bow down. God met them and delivered them from the fiery furnace. Now, the reality is there are a lot of people that God will not deliver from the fiery furnace, but they will instantly be in his presence, okay? So that is a snapshot of the beast from the earth, the false prophet, his deceptive appearance, his devilish authority, his deadly activity. Let's talk for a few moments about application. How should we then live? How do you, how do you apply a passage like this? What does this have to do with us today? Um, three points I'm going to give you this morning. Um, reject powerless Christianity. That's point number one of application. Reject powerless Christianity. It would be easy for us to read a passage like this about counterfeit signs and wonders, about counterfeit spiritual power, and just say, well, then we don't want anything to do with spiritual power. We don't want anything to do with signs and wonders. We don't want anything to do with manifestations of the Holy Spirit and, and things that are, uh, make us uncomfortable and things which could themselves be counterfeit. We don't want anything to do with that. After all, there have been many of us who have witnessed various kinds of charismatic abuses of spiritual power, whether we're watching on TV or we've been in a, a service and we've seen things. And it's like, that just doesn't ring true. And a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it is false. And so the pendulum swings way the other way and we say, well, and we, we don't want to go there. We don't want anything that smells of the counterfeit. But the result of that, church, I believe, is an impotent, 
anemic, often defeated brand of Christianity. We've gone so far away from spiritual power because we're afraid of the counterfeit, that we go the other direction and then we're not glorifying to God and we're not compelling to the world. I don't believe that this is what God intends for us. You see, the Holy Spirit does not reside in us to be dormant, but to be powerful. How ridiculous would that be, right? That the third person of the authentic trinity, omnipotent God, comes to live inside of us. Oh, but we're not, we're not going to be powerful, right? There's not going to be any sense of manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives because that's, that's on us. That's not on him. I believe that we do have the capacity to grieve the Spirit, to quench the Spirit. And again, that results in that impotent brand of Christianity with so much defeat. I believe that the Holy Spirit resides in us not to be dormant, but to be powerful. You see, it's not a matter of being either or. I I talk about this a lot, but I think it's important because churches tend to be either or. We are either churches of the Word or we're churches of the Spirit. This is not an either-or proposition. This is a both-and. In fact, to be biblical, I believe with all of my heart, is to be powerful in the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be biblical. And that's one of the many reasons that I get excited about this church. I get excited about the future of First Baptist Church because I believe we are uniquely positioned to be a both-and kind of church, operating in both spirit and truth, both biblical and powerful. Does that make sense? So the first point of application, reject powerless Christianity. Number two, reject mindless Christianity. Reject mindless Christianity. You know, too often in the church, we're guilty of saying things like, you know, you don't need to be a Bible scholar, right? And I I get what we're doing when we say that, right? I, I know why we do that. We don't want to scare people away. We want to make church and Christianity as palatable as possible, as easy as possible. But here's the problem with that. If you don't know your Bible well, you will fall prey to Satan's deception. If you don't know your Bible well, you will fall prey to Satan's deception. Think about Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eve kind of knew God's word, didn't she? She kind of knew God's word, but not well enough because when Satan twisted it and gave her just enough of the truth, but wrapped in a lie, she was not able to recognize it and to overcome Satan's deception. What does the false prophet do in his ministry? What is this chapter all about? It's about deception. Deception is all about making something seem true, but it's really a lie. And there's just enough truth in there to make it seem true, but it is, in actuality, a lie. If you don't know your Bible well, you will fall prey to Satan's deception. How do you know if something's a forgery? How do you know if, uh, you know, for those in law enforcement who are gifted in knowing about counterfeit bills, how do they recognize counterfeit bills? They are so familiar with the authentic. They know that authentic bill inside and out so that when there is a forgery, it's like, oh, I recognize it right away. Same thing with our faith. You've got to become so familiar with the truth of God's word and not just kind of, sort of, I think that's in there somewhere, but no, 
God has given us everything that we need so that we will not fall into Satan's deception. But we got to do our part. So it is with our faith. Number three, and this one, uh, this one's going to be interesting. Number three, reject sensationalistic Christianity. Reject sensationalistic Christianity. Now, what does that mean? This is what it means. Sensationalism. The use of exciting or shocking stories or language at the expense of accuracy in order to provoke public interest or excitement. The use of exciting or shocking stories or language at the expense of accuracy in order to provoke public interest or excitement. The book of Revelation is a hotbed for sensationalistic Christianity. All kinds of sensationalism and all kinds of irresponsible applications. Um, You combine that with social media and we have a really big problem. In church, we have a really big problem. Christians have quoted, posted, and reposted all kinds of wild ideas and conspiracy theories without knowledge of their accuracy. And that is a really big problem. Here are two examples, especially as they relate to the book of Revelation. Number one, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny, but you've heard it, haven't you? Vaccination, the mark of the beast. Now, hopefully, based on our study of Scripture this morning, you can refute that, right? You know better this morning because of our study of Scripture. And whatever your feelings about vaccination, again, that's a personal decision between you and your health care provider, you go there. It is an abuse of God's sacred word to make such irresponsible claims. Okay? It is sensationalistic. And it must be rejected. Number two. (laughs) But you've seen it, haven't you? No? That's new to you? Revelation 17.4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. There may be very well be reasons to be critical of the vice president and her policies, but once again, this is a gross misuse of sacred scripture. This is not what Revelation 17.4 is talking about. And to carelessly post something like this, largely to score a political point, it cheapens the sanctity of the word of God and it tarnishes the gospel. All right? And it makes all Christians, all of them, all of us look like bitter whack jobs when you do that, okay? And so we've got to be better than that. And we've got to reject sensationalism that leads to misinterpretation and misapplication of the word of God. And as we talk about social media, snarkiness is not a fruit of the spirit, right? It doesn't draw anybody to Jesus, And so practically speaking, before you speak on or post anything, would you ask yourself these three questions? I think they're very basic, and I think they're helpful. Number one, is it true? Is it true? And and not just, well, I think it is, or I think it's mostly true, or um, if you have any doubt, you have no business posting or reposting something that you don't know is 100% accurate and true. 
Number two, is it, is it edifying? Is this going to build someone up? Is this going to bring encouragement? Or is, again, this portraying Christ in some kind of divisive, argumentative, just snarky kind of way? And number three, is it necessary? Um, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the scriptures tell us that when words are many, sin is not absent. I think that's true for words. I think that's probably true for social media posts as well. Sometimes we just don't need to speak. Sometimes we just don't need to speak. Ultimately, the question is, does it draw people to Jesus or does it drive them away? Here's my point. My ultimate point is this. If you want people to believe that the gospel that you share is absolutely true, and I believe you do, right? Then make sure that everything else that you share is absolutely true. Because if you don't, then your gospel, our gospel, his gospel is going to have a credibility problem. When they see the crazy stuff that we buy into and that we post and that we put on there, and then we put a Bible verse, it's that whole James thing where salt water and fresh water, you know, coming from the same, it's like, this should not be. Finally, listen to the words in Revelation 22, verse 18. Sobering words. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. I think that the point is, church, be careful how you handle God's sacred word. Handle with care. Reject sensationalistic Christianity. Well, let's end on a high note. That was heavy, right? And um, I feel better, though. Let's end on a high note as we look ahead to see the ultimate end of the two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And here's the spoiler alert, all right? We're not there yet. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But the spoiler alert is both beasts are defeated. Isn't that good news? Both beasts are defeated. So let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. It says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And then finally, chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. There's the, there's the whole unholy trinity, right? And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Right? If you want to boil down the entire message of this book of Revelation, God wins. God wins. And because God wins, all of those who belong to him also win. They will overcome and be given the victor's crown. So would you bow your head with me as we pray? Father, again, we thank you for the solid foundation upon which you have given us to stand. We thank you for the beauty of your word, the power of your word. We thank you for the authentic trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be, would be powerful in us and through us, and that the world would see the reality of the authentic God that we would be your vessels, obedient to wherever it is you lead and whatever you would have us to do. 
We thank you in advance for the defeat of the unholy trinity. And especially as we think of the empty tomb next Sunday. We are so energized and ready to celebrate and to worship. We thank you for this reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.